Morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here on this beautiful winter's day. Uh, if you live in the northern hemisphere, this is summer. Uh, if you live in the southern hemisphere, this is winter. Those people who do travel between hemispheres always seem to comment on the fact that we have glorious winters. It's great to be here again. Um, it's great to see some familiar faces and people who I've not met before. My name is Peter Huxley. I generally go to the 6pm service here and um, it's been my privilege to be able to uh, speak at the 9 o'clock and now at the 10 o'clock. Before I start, let me pray. Father, you give us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word. We ask today that your Holy Spirit will be with us as we look at this passage here in John. Help us to understand it. Help, it, help us to understand what it means to us and how we ought to respond to it in our lives. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Now, as you came in today, you would have received an outline, I hope. Has everybody got one to look on to? If you haven't, put your hand up and I'm sure somebody will race out and get you a copy. That just gives you a, a brief outline of what I'm going to be talking about in about the order that I'm doing it. Uh, we're going to look at what people believe, um, how come some Christians hold incorrect beliefs. Uh, the church that John's writing to is um, in a mess. Um, he talks about three witnesses, but then he goes to great pains to point out that Jesus was not only God but also man and that uh, God testifies to this and that if we have Jesus, we have life and if we don't have Jesus, we don't have life. And whenever you read the Bible... Um, you're challenged to make a response and that's what we're going to conclude with. So let's get stuck into it. What do you believe? What do you believe? And why do you believe what you believe? And how do you know that what you believe is true? There are those in the world that believe that human experience, rational thinking, provide the only source of true knowledge. There are those that believe that economic growth is the answer to the ills of the world and that prosperity will eventually solve all the world's problems. There are others that believe that if we had stricter laws, uh, greater law enforcement, that would stop all the violence and all the killing. There are others that believe that if you issue a gun to everyone, that will make the world a safer place. Some believe that if you have the right political ideology, uh, be capitalism or communism or some other variation, that that's the answer. And there are those who believe that the earth is flat. And there are those that believe that Australia doesn't exist. Sorry about that. If you want to know more about that, you can talk to me later. People in this world hold many and varied beliefs and often they're conflicting. Some of these views are held so vehemently that even if they were given the facts, they would ignore them and continue believing what they believe. Why am I not surprised? In addition to that, the sad part is that there are people who profess to be Christians who are not immune from holding conflicting views. 
views that have no basis in scripture. People professing to be Christians hold a range of beliefs, some of which are contradictory, some of which are downright wrong, whilst others rely on very complicated systems of belief, rules, regulations and uh, other codes of behaviour. They all claim to be the true way to Christian living and salvation. Who do you believe? Some of these beliefs are quite easy to spot. Others are so cleverly crafted that the detection of falsehood can be quite difficult. We can be pushed and pulled in many directions by those who claim to know the real truth and seduced into following some truth or other based on, perhaps, the persuasiveness of someone's argument or the belief that their way is the best way. We may be attracted to the particular person because they're a fantastic communicator. We may be attracted because they're charismatic, dynamic, Their explanation is so clear that it has to make sense and it must be right. We're easily persuaded. We follow fads, fabrications, because we yearn for a better life. We work work and toil to get ahead. We plan and save to be comfortable in our life and in our later years. We strive for comfort, safety, security and happiness. We fill our barns with so much stuff that we desire to build bigger ones and to accommodate more stuff and only then will we be satisfied or will we? The writer of this letter, the Apostle John, was called by Jesus alongside the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman by trade and one of John Baptist's disciples. John was a forthright person, passionate about what he believed and he was prone to a bit of tempestuous outburst. In this way he's a bit like Simon Peter who cut the ear off the the soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane and a bit like his own brother, maybe it was in the genes and that was James but both of them were disciples. John has five books in the New Testament attributed to him, the Gospel of John from which Chris read at the first reading, three letters of John, one of which we're looking at today, and also the book of Revelation. Some of the things we learn from the life of John throughout his apostleship is that we are able to love because God first loved us. And when John changes a life, he doesn't take away the characteristics of our personality, but he rather puts them into effective use for the work that he has set aside for us to do. So what about this letter, this one John What's it about? Why did John write it? And why do we have it here? Well, everything contained in, uh, about the identity of the church in, uh, that he's writing to in 1 John is contained within the text. In other words, we don't know the name of the church or the community to which it was addressed. We do know that they were Christians. We also know that they appear to be, have, be well known uh, to John and that John was well known to them. And the third thing we know is that they were facing a threat from false teaching, a threat which was both serious and which appears to have arisen from within their ranks. 
The church was splintered, divided and in a mess. There was false teaching that contaminated the church community and threatened to destroy it. From what we have been able to gather, the teaching centred around teaching that Jesus wasn't God and that sinfulness was okay because the more you sinned, the more forgiveness you received. John saw this as false teaching and wrote this letter to sort it out. He admonishes those who are peddling the false teaching. He says what the correct teaching is and he offers encouragement. Last week, Noel spoke about faith in Jesus, believing in him as the way to overcome the world and Satan. Noel amplified what John was saying in that because we're caught up in a spiritual war, because Satan is in the world, he is active and plays with our hearts and plays with our minds, causing us to doubt God's word and to steer us away from the truth, just as he did in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. In today's passage, we see the basis upon which the truth of the gospel is based, the very foundation of our knowledge about God and his son. And John cites three witnesses to attest to that truth. I'll just reread a portion, verses 6 to 8. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Now a witness, as we know, can be a person who sees an event, typically a crime or, or an accident, take place. A witness can also be something inanimate, such as a material thing, a piece of paper or an event that provides evidence of something occurring. Here John identifies three witnesses, water, blood and spirit. How do water and blood become witnesses, you ask? The central witness here is the spirit, the one that John emphasises, uh, that attests to the working of the spirit in the heart of believers. The two other elements, namely water and blood, are actually historical events. Now, I've read and spoke with people uh, many times about the um, historical um, Jesus, the fact that Jesus actually lived and died on this earth. Some people believe that, uh, that he did. Other people believe it's a fairy story. But if you take the time, uh, I downloaded some information yesterday, um, pages and pages of information by historians. And there's validity and there's evidence throughout um, documents that are available to, to us to show that Jesus was actually on the earth and he was um, seen and referred to by many people other than those which we have in the Bible. So to suggest that it does, it's not part of history... Um, Either the people are completely ignorant of the fact and don't know, or they do know and choose not to accept it. So why three witnesses, you ask? Well, if you remember back to the Old Testament, um, we read in Deuteronomy 19.15 that as part of the law of Moses, one witness is not enough 
to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence that they may have committed. The matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The law of Moses was concerned um, with not just the number of witnesses but also the character of the witness because false and malicious witnesses were to receive punishment due to the crime for which they falsely accused someone else. The concern for the character of the witness is naturally shared by John who appeals to the witness of God himself and his spirit, a witness that is beyond whose character is beyond question. John says that the spirit, the water and the blood are three things which testify to Jesus. His argument is that we cannot rely on the testimonies of corrupt men to prove who Jesus is. After all, this is the very thing that caused the fracturing and disharmony in the church that he's writing to. To close out the basis of knowledge about God and Jesus, John identifies three things that are from God to be a witness to Jesus. And these three, we are are told, agree. Firstly, the water. At his baptism, Jesus received the Holy Spirit. We read in Matthew that it descended like a dove. Jesus didn't come into the world through baptism. And that was one of the false teachings that was in the church at the time. Jesus came from the Father. Chris read for us from the Gospel of John, which says exactly that. And I'll just reread that little portion. The Word became flesh, verse 14, and made his dwelling among us. Whilst Jesus was God, he was also fully a man. He was born a baby grew up as an infant, a teenager, I wonder what he was like as a teenager, and a man. He slept, he ate food, he talked, he felt pain, and he died. Any suggestion that he wasn't human is false and fanciful in view of the facts of the Bible. Yet some people have over the centuries dreamt up some quite erroneous things about Jesus. I've just, there's Lots of them, but I've just picked three as an example. One example was people say that Jesus only appeared to be human, that he was not actually human. And that was well before they had um, holograms. Another erroneous um, thing was that Jesus was subordinate to his father in power and glory. And the one that they were dealing with here in particular was that Jesus' humanity and divinity existed separately from each other. They're all wrong teaching. If he wasn't a man, then he would never have been able to carry out our sins on the cross. He wouldn't have been able to deal with them on our behalf. So Jesus is fully human And the testimony of water and blood is attested to by the Spirit. In some senses, the water and the blood were like bookends. You know how they hold books up. The baptism was the beginning of his ministry here on earth. And the blood, which is the crucifixion and his death, is the end of his ministry here on earth. That's the period that we're talking about. 
The descending of the Holy Spirit at his baptism marked the beginning of his ministry. It's the Holy Spirit that testifies to this, says John, not men, not priests, not angels, but the Spirit who testified that Jesus was the Son of God. So Jesus was a man in the flesh, and Jesus died for our sins, and the Spirit of God testifies to this, says John. So what about the blood? The blood is here, mentioned here, in reference to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, he gave his life as a ransom for mankind in order to pay for our sins. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And in 1 John 1 7 tells us the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So the Apostle John explains to the church that is in a turmoil that the spirit, the water and the blood are three irrefutable testimonies from witnesses that prove from a heavenly standpoint, not a human viewpoint, that Jesus was born, Jesus was baptised, he was a man and he was crucified for us. The spirit testifies to real historical events. So what are we to do with this information? We need to have a response whenever we're confronted by the truth of God's word. What are we being challenged to do? In verses 10 to 12, we read in the reading from 1 John, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So there are only two choices, really. There's no middle ground, no fence-sitting. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, Jesus. The promise of God is that we have eternal life. God's testimony about us, if you like, is that we have the Son of, if we have the Son of God, we have life. You'll notice in the passage, verses uh, 10 to 12, that the word believe occurs three times. Quite different contexts, though. First of all, believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Believe God or you make him out to be a liar. Believe God's testimony. Believe, believe, believe. That's what we're called to do. We don't have to bend over backwards to show God how good we are. Because we're not. We don't have to live the life of a hermit to cleanse our life of material things, to demonstrate our commitment to God. We don't have to follow rules and regulations, rituals and practices, ticking boxes. We don't have to strive to be good because without Jesus, all that effort is a waste of time. We've been called to believe in the Lord Jesus and that's how we're given eternal life because eternal life is about being in Jesus. That's the good news that we often hear about, the good news that the Bible talks about. Believing in Jesus gives us eternal life. On the other hand, the news for those who don't believe is rather grim. 
Whoever does not believe God makes him out to be a liar. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's pretty precarious ground, isn't it? But there's no middle ground. It's either Son of God and life, or no Son of God and no life. Can't be any clearer than that, says John. Faith in Jesus is belief in God's testimony in his Son, and this comes through the Spirit in our lives, testifying, verifying, endorsing, confirming, assuring us of our eternal life. If we reject that testimony regarding the incarnation, we make God out to be a liar, and that's blasphemy. Jesus isn't merely a good teacher or a prophet or a wise man. He's all of that, but he's also the incarnate son of the living God. And if we reject that, we reject God. No matter how much you protest and try to suggest that uh, Jesus and God aren't, aren't uh, inextricably linked, um, you fall into complete error if you do that. If we don't believe, we call God a liar. Last week, Nail talked to us that Satan is the great liar. He plays mischief with our minds, casting doubt on the truth of God's word, and he sows the seeds of doubt in our mind. What John is clearly saying here is that we are to believe in God's testimony. He warns us not to believe men, not to believe Satan, because only God's testimony is true. And the water, the blood and the spirit testify to this. I had a discussion last week uh, with a Christian fellow um, over coffee. I don't drink coffee, I had hot chocolate. But uh, he, was, he said to me, Pete, what I'd really like to happen is for Jesus to come and sit at the table with us and confirm to me that I have eternal life. And I said, Mick, we don't need to do that. We just need to look at God's word. God's word is true and his testimony is true. Um, we will have doubts because Satan is continually trying to needle us, trying to put doubt in our minds. And whilst, whilst ever we're on earth, that's going to happen. But we need to look to God, look to his spirit to help us sort through that. Now, in finishing, I just want to read, uh, I've got two stories, but I'm only going to read one of them. Um, Charles Fuller was a radio broadcaster and Bible teacher years ago in America. He once announced that he would be speaking the following Sunday on the topic of heaven. Now, during the week, he received a letter from an elderly gentleman who was very ill, someone who was on his deathbed. The man wrote this. Dear Charles, next Sunday you're about to talk, you're, you are to talk about heaven. I'm interested in that land because I've had a clear title to a bit of property there for over 55 years. I didn't buy it. It was given to me without money and without price. But the donor who gave it to me purchased it for me at a tremendous sacrifice. Now I'm not holding it for speculation since the title is not transferable. It's not a vacant lot. For more than half a century, I've been sending materials out of which the greatest architect and builder of the universe has been building a home for me which will never need to be remodelled or repaired because it will suit me perfectly, individually, and will never grow old. 
Termites can never undermine its foundations because the foundations rest on the rock of ages. Fire can't destroy it. Floods can't wash it away. No locks or bolts will ever be placed on its doors. For no vicious person can ever enter that land where my dwelling stands. It's now almost completed and ready for me to enter in and abide in peace eternally, without fear of ever being rejected. I hope to hear your sermon on heaven next Sunday from my home in Los Angeles, but I've got no guarantee that I'll be able to do so. You see, my ticket to heaven has no date marked for the journey, and no return ticket either, and no permit for baggage. Yes, I'm all ready to go, and I may not be here when you talk next Sunday, but I'll meet you there someday. What gave this dying man the knowledge of his sins forgiven and the confidence of a home in heaven? He accepted God's free gift of eternal life and stood firmly on that promise, and the same can be true of us. If you've already received Christ as your saviour, then rest in the fact that you're eternally secure. Base your assurance of salvation not on your feelings, not on your emotions, not on what you do, but on the Father's promise of eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your eternal promise. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in you. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And we thank you that we can be with you forever. Help us to believe this. Help us to be assured by this in the face of everything that Satan tries to throw at us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.